Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. We have a very special guest today uh, because every guest is special. Yep. <laughs> Today's guest is James Connolly. James is a director, producer, chef. He's His most recent film, The Sacred Cow, looks at meat production and challenges the ways uh, some of the messages that we're getting, such as veganism, and, and that there really is a sustainable way of, of, of eating, of eating meat. He talks about, I mean, we talk about so many things uh, that it was, you know, I, I, we went on a journey, uh, on a conscious journey, but, a, but, but a fun journey indeed. One of the things though, that he is a huge proponent of is getting back to the way that humans naturally eat. Evolutionarily speaking, uh, veganism doesn't really make sense to be completely honest. And it can actually be quite dangerous based on some body types. Children, for example, there's a reason why they have high caloric diets, high in fat, high in you know carbohydrates and things like this. Again, you know, I'm, I'm not the one to be speaking towards this, but I do know enough to speak up a little. And giving children things like oat milk, I, I don't know if I agree with that. In fact, I don't agree with that. You know, that's me doing my little wishy-washy stuff. I don't agree with that. Children need high fat for their bodies because they're growing and they need it for their brains and so on and so forth. So James is definitely a proponent of eating a diet that makes sense and, and promoting awareness that makes sense and challenging things and challenging things on both sides. I'd say that he's more He's more just a man who's trying to create understanding in the world around him rather than to pick some strange tribalist mentality uh, and, and understand the world through uh, a myopic lens. So it's been such a pleasure to have James on the show and uh, enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to... I'm probably wrong about everything. All right, we have with us today James Connolly. Uh, interesting backstory. The internet is the Wild West, and what a what a wonderful place it is. Because the reason I I, I got to meet you as a friend of mine, you guys were having a debate about poaching online on this on this thread. And he was going back and forth and, and he had his standpoint. And I was like, I see that. But then I was seeing your standpoint. And I was like, hold on, I think we need to like talk to this guy. So I reached out and, and now here you are. And it, it turns out that, you know, this is how ignorant I am. You're a producer in this, this recent film, The Sacred Cow, which is a huge deal. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, sure. Yeah, thank you for uh, <laughs> reaching out. Um, yeah, I mean that that whole story. Um, it, you know, it's kind of an Instagram ad, uh, so it keeps on showing up in my feed. And I think if you, I think in some ways Instagram understands that if uh, if it can create any sort of emotional response, doesn't require it, it's either good or bad. Um, it you know it really riles me up, uh, and specifically uh, this anti poaching initiative uh, started by this guy who. 
Um, should we get into it now? You want to get of into course. it? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Organic, so, uh, my friend. It's all about being yeah. organic. Um, so Damien Mander, uh, he's got a TED Talk. Uh, you know, he kind of shows up. He, you know, he kind of reminds me of like, um, and, uh, you know, I hate how the internet always goes into Nazism, but like, you know, the sort of the Nazis that would cry over Wagner songs and stuff like that. Um, you know, every time he gives a talk, he starts to break down and cry. Now, what this guy is, is a special forces. Uh, he was an Australian special forces guy. I think he had eventually kind of got into um, being a gun for hire, sort of mercenary work and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, he made a lot of money off of that. Um, he went down to Brazil. He was doing a lot of drugs. He was like hanging out with loose women. And this is all by his by his accounts. story, yeah, yeah. by his accounts. And so he had this epiphany that he wanted to do something with his life. And so what does every... Because he's done white... fucking up other people's lives. <laughs> totally right. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, so he, he goes, he has this epiphany. He's like, I'm going to go vegan. Uh, and I'm, you know, what does every sort of white colonial like guy who wants to have an adventure do? He goes to Africa. And I think he kind of starts out in South Africa. And they're like, what the fuck? Who is this guy? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, get out of here. And I think he ends up... Who do you settling... think that you think that you are? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and he has he has no idea about culture. He has no idea what he's right. doing. Um, I think he settles down in Tanzania. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I don't know. Um, I honestly don't know enough about it, but. Yeah. And so he starts this organization. It's an anti-poaching organization. Um, and he decides that the best thing for him to do is to find these women, uh, marginalized women. He's going to train them in special forces, going to make them all go vegan. And they're going to hunt uh, poachers. Gee, what is uh, it? Sorry, I'm going to pause you for a second. He yeah, finds no, a please. bunch of marginalized women, converts them to a way of living their lives. Sounds a little bit like a cult. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I could I be mean, wrong. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't really get a sense of it because every piece that I've seen on him is a puff piece. Um, and so I've never been able to determine whether or not they actually shoot poachers, uh, if they're there for defensive purposes only. Uh, everything goes up to a point where they interview this guy and he tells them the story and then there is no pushback. It's like it's one of those weird aspects of journalism where I just mm. can't get a sense of whether or not anybody's like, why is this guy down here? Um, and he's shown up at like UN summits um, on the future of food. He, he's become a big sort of vegan celebrity. Uh, you can see him on podcasts where vegans are like, this is a man's man because he goes out and, you know, he protects animals and all this other stuff. Now, my my main thing about it is it's same thing with the U.S. drug war. It's like you're going to blame the end user, uh, you know, or you're going to blame anybody who is part yeah. of that systematic uh, oppression that puts them in places where they're part of the drug trade, either a mule or anything like that. You're going to blame people through poverty and through disenfranchisement and through all endemic poverty. You're going to blame those people. And he is quite literally, I think, hunting, you know, African peoples, uh, who are not the end user, the end buyer of a lot of these uh, things, uh, you know, uh, ivory or, you know, anything like that. And so when you look at the end buyer, most of it comes from Asia, um, places in Vietnam and stuff like that. So why the fuck didn't he go there? I just don't understand. <laughs> why? Because he would have been arrested within three seconds, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, so 
I don't know why he kind of shows up. I don't know why Instagram had decided that they were going to go and say and put these ads up there, but he just kind of shows up and I just, every single time he does, I have to comment. <laughs> and, and I'm so glad that you did, but, but you have a point. Like, remember the film Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh yeah. And he goes to whatever country that is. I don't know, but he's just killing all these like, Latin Americans essentially, or or bad boys too, when they're driving through the favelas and they're just smashing oh. through shacks. And it's yeah. like you do realize that <laughs> those are people's homes, right? So what what I'm saying with this is that you know we're really not looking at the why here. And the why, well, we're part of the problem, you know. When when we go and we fight these wars and we're, you know, we're like we're we're educating these people, it's like, well, first of all. Do they ask for your help? You know, I mean, there's just so many conundrums about it. And a lot of the legacies of the problems really come back from us. Yeah. Like poaching. Why, yeah. why is that their ways? Why is that their way of sustenance? You know, because these are poor people that are doing it, I imagine. Or um, yeah, I mean, I would say the the thing about um there's there's actually a great documentary uh called Poverty Inc. Uh, and it really goes into a, a lot of sort of neoliberal colonialism uh, through the through the sort of trade of um, uh, providing any number of different um, you know economic means uh, you know like donations and food and supplies and all this stuff. What it ends up doing more often than not is it destroys local economies. So you get something like Tom's shoes, right? So you get a guy who, you know, he wants to create a shoe. Every shoe that you buy, uh, you know, goes down to, um, you know, uh, Brazil, there is an equal one going down to Brazil. Well, what does that do for the cobbler trade in Brazil? What happens to all those people oh. who no longer have, uh, you know, can no longer support themselves through that? Um, I think we see that a lot in the way that we have taken a lot of like really low nutrient, um, you know, really lack of quality foods that we produce a massive surplus in, in America, grains and corn and all of that stuff. We create these energy biscuits and then we just dump them all over Africa. Um, you know, and what it does is it really destroys the local economies um, and makes them heavily dependent upon the largesse of the West. Um, and when you force a lot of those countries into this idea of you're a developing country, uh, you know, you need to be part of this new revolution of things, you make them heavily dependent upon, uh, you know, any number of different governmental organizations that come in. And, and what ends up happening backdoors of that is that the mineral rights, the mining rights, the, you know, water rights, every single one of those things is essentially leached from that country. They become heavily dependent uh, economic debt, um, you know, to build infrastructure that may not necessarily be needed. Um, you know, we have this thing. It's like um, there's a great book called uh, There's No Such Thing as a Free Gift. Uh, and it talks about the Clinton Foundation coming in on, under the auspices of uh, the specific one is Mongolia. Um, and he flies over in his private jet, you know, with his friend who's a mineral and mining rights uh, billionaire. Uh, in Canada, and then they show up and they're like, oh, we're just working on child health. And meanwhile, they're knocking on the door uh, and just pulling enormous amount of resources out of Mongolia, which if they had autonomy over that would would be keeping most of the wealth within country. Um, you know, and that's just, you know, it's just the way we operate, <laughs> you know. Well, I was uh, having a, oh, sorry. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, please, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, I was having this interesting conversation with a guy named William Godner, and he's a Canadian conservative. He's like, he's kind of like a Jordan Peterson sort of guy, but on the conservative side or whatever. Okay. Because apparently he's on the liberal side, Jordan Peterson. Oh, wow. And he, that's, yeah. that's interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. That's how he sees himself as a classical yeah. liberalist. Um, but my point is, is that he's talking, we're talking about colonialism. And he's like, well, all these countries that have decolonized, now they're the worst for the wear. And it's like, okay, but look at Iraq. You know, we went into the war in Iraq, we did that. And then we just pulled out. And then it was like complete chaos because there was nothing was put into place. Like there really wasn't any, you know, it's kind of like the movie Team America. They just go in there and shoot all the shit up and then they leave and, and people are just left in the rubble, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that's sort of what this, I guess, it's like a 21st century colonization sort of is, right? Like, it's, they aren't colonies, but we're going in there and we're bailing them out. Well, like you said, there's no free gift. Mm. So what is kind of the, the solution to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you, you know, if you, uh, a, a bit of a history lesson, there, there was a, um, uh, after the Bolsheviks had taken over uh, Russia, uh, they went into the archives of the monarchy at the time, and they found this thing called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Um, and it was uh, the Western powers had had all colluded in uh, carving up uh, what was left of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and a lot of those lines were essentially arbitrarily drawn. Uh, France gets this country, uh, Britain gets this country, uh, Russia gets this, and and that. And so when you well, look sorry at sorry, Trap, what year yeah. would this document have been written? Uh, I, th I I think it was sort of written. Um, it was discovered in like 1917, 1918, okay. uh, and nobody would publish it. Uh, the Guardian was the only one that actually published it. It was a big kind of international like um, uh, story, but nobody wanted to go anywhere near it. Um, and it really talks about like, you know, how much uh, these countries were essentially divided along these lines that took no, they didn't care at all about, um, you know, what ethnic uh, majorities and minorities would have to coexist together. Um, and so what we're seeing is that all of the process of that is essentially just has nothing to do with whether or not, um, you know, these, these localities and these individuals and stuff like that. Um, are are coexisting within a framework that wasn't under complete totalitarian regimes that would you know crush any resistance to any of that and so like you know the native american saying that is like trauma ex uh, exists for seven generations well we're going to be dealing with this for a long time right <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can talk about this stuff forever. We can tangentially get around to sacred cow if you want. <laughs> well, there's 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 a saying. I mean, I forget where I heard it, but I did a lot of U.S. Latin American history in my undergrad when you know right. between not being hammered and trying to focus. But they talked a lot about how the U.S. loved dictators, right? Because in in the Cold War period, there was the fear of socialism right or, or, or excuse me of communism and the right. spheres of influence while russia represented communism and you can't exactly have a pitched battle because the consequences would be complete you know mutually assured destruction so they yeah. fought all these proxy wars vietnam you know in 1954 there was the coup of guatemala i think it was guatemala yeah. and that's because a socialist government was going to get in not a communist one but because of that the cia engineered this 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 coup 
My point being is that dictators are easier to control because they control the masses than, say, a socialist government of a country that is a resource. Like, it's one to be exploited. So it's a lot easier to exploit a country when it's living under kind of an autocratic empire than a democratic one. Yeah, and you find that sort of weirdness that kind of happens when you start to see American uh, recipe books from like the 60s and 70s, <laughs> uh, and they're filled with like pineapple and all of these bananas and all that, you know, any number of different things associated with that. Uh, the United Fruit Company was behind Guatemala, right? So you look at you look at this, you know, multinational, uh, you know, corporation that you know, hired or told the U.S. government, you have to come in here and take this guy out. And the, the reason why the Guatemalan president was uh, was deposed, um, the whole communist thing was like added in later on. I think they took a number of different, um, you know, uh, Karl Marx books and kind of threw it into yeah. his house <laughs> afterwards. Um, but you look at like Edward Bernays, right, the father of propaganda, man, essentially coined the word propaganda, was hired to go down there. Uh, and create this whole mythology behind that. But the United Free Company was like, you know, they had all of this land and this president wanted to take the land that they weren't using, that had no agricultural practices at all, and start to use the farm that so that people could eat. And that was so abhorrent to the United Free Company that they were like, that's it, we're just taking over this government. You know, it's insane. Absolutely insane. Well, and I sent you that article about um, how with COVID, all this food surplus that's being thrown out and stuff like that. And it's like, mm. why, why is that happening? Why can't we give that food to, you know, places that need them? Like, why does there have to be uh, famine in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, we produce enough calories uh, to feed 10 billion people every year. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have, we have for a while. Um, you know, it's not nutrients, it's calories. Um, you know, uh, we have an infrastructure that's built around the idea that everything will keep on flowing. Um, and so you say you have a pig farmer, he's got 300 pigs that need to be slaughtered on this date, right? He goes to the packing house. Now the packing house has been, has been backed up because of COVID. Uh, he is being told by the U.S. government that he has to euthanize every single one of those because there is no place to slaughter. So we have these like systems in place that don't allow for any degree of sort of, um, of flexibility at all. Um, and so you have this incredible backlog. Uh, and then you have state by state wide, um, you know, mandates on what you can do with this food because you can't just give it away. You can't, you, you can't sell it in bulk. Uh, to people. You can't do any of it. You can't even give it to a food pantry. It has to go through this process where it, it, you know, it ends up packaged, ready for use. And then if it goes off or is getting close to going off, then you can give it to food pantries. Um, But we just didn't have any of the infrastructure for that. But like before COVID, we we waste 40% of our food anyway in the U.S., um, expiration dates, sell-by dates. um, You know, we're just trying to convince people continuously buy. Um, to keep this whole kind of thing going, yeah. Is, <laughs> sorry, it, it's taking me a second to let that 40%. catch up. Yeah. So, so you'll have you'll have tomatoes come up from Mexico, um, and as they're crossing the border, if commodity dealers decide that this tomato isn't, you know, it, we're going to downgrade the price of it by like two cents, 
they will dump that on the side of the road. It's not worth the gas to bring it to market at that point. Um, and so we like we have this system in place that capitalism essentially runs, all right, um, and um, it's highly dependent upon small margins. I mean, incredibly small margins. Um, and the only people who really make enormous wealth off of that are the brokers and traders. Um, and we've had that since the Civil War. The Civil War like kind of created the initial commodity markets uh, uh, coming through Chicago and stuff like that, uh, determining the price of things and, and everything like that. But now it's just hyperinflated. Yeah. So, so we're creating – now, I, I apologize, James. It takes me a while for these things to catch up to a guy like me. But it sounds like there's a <laughs> – like a like a a self-created deficit when there doesn't need to be mm. right like we're creating this false sense of a food insecurity when when in reality there isn't um yeah i mean i think so i uh it's it it's heavily dependent upon um you know, any number of, I, you know, it's really hard to kind of get into the sense of sure. um, a lot of these things. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, studying a lot of this stuff, it's um, what, what you find is an enormous pressure uh, to just produce as much as you possibly can. Um, and so one of the stories that I always tell is, um, say you get a guy who wants to start a chicken farm. Uh, he goes to Purdue and he signs a contract, an exclusive contract with Purdue. Uh, he has to get that contract in order to get the loan to build the building. It's built by Purdue's specs uh, according to their qualifications for what they want. Uh, he takes all of the risk for that loan. He has to buy the feed from them. He has to buy uh, the antibiotics from them. Uh, he has to buy the chicks from them. Uh, he still takes... Uh, all of the risk. Uh, he grows all of those chickens and then he sells them back to Purdue uh, at the price that they determine. Um, and, and that's it. So he can make a little, so if you get like a $25 KFC bucket of chicken, the farmer makes 25 cents on that. So everybody is making money off of that uh, except for the farmer. And he's living in a cycle of debt just a constant cycle of debt uh, and hoping in many ways that he can kind of pull himself out of it. But now he's, uh, he's already leveraged the farm. He's leveraged uh, his future. His farm is his home, right? Uh, in many different ways. Um, in some ways we've kind of separated those two, um, you know, and that's the system that we're in nowadays. Um, and so like looking at farming systems, looking at the way that people produce food, um, you know, we started to make sacred cow because we wanted to really understand that there was there's a lot of there's a lot of pressures um, that are happening inside of our food system that we just have absolutely no way of looking at. Um, everybody is segregated in so many different directions. From the slaughterhouse has nothing to do with the rancher, has nothing to do with the chicken farmer, uh, you know, the pig farmer. Everything is separated, and so we grew up with like. Um, you know, you grew up with like the old McDonald has a farm, right? An integrated farm with like livestock and pigs and chickens and, right. you know, animal farms got horses on there. Every single one of those animals was part of a circular system. Um, the industrialization of agriculture said, no, we're going to take every part of that system. We're going to separate it. Uh, and then we're going to, in essence, create monoculture everywhere. Um, and that's how we grow food nowadays, right? So your oat milk uh, is just massive, just miles and miles of oats. 
um, being grown. Um, you know, every single aspect of that is separated and then weirdly kind of like combined back together. So like the oats are separated, they're blended with water and like sold for $6 for, you know, a quart yeah. and it costs like two cents to make. Um, it's just, it's just water. It's like cloudy water. It has nothing to do with milk. Right. So you have that, right. So you can sell that at a premium to the consumer, but then you can also take the rest of the oat plant and you can feed it to cattle and you can separate all of that and then sell it back to the cattle industry. So, um, so for us, it's like, we, we wanted to get into the nitty gritty of all of that stuff. We wanted to just talk about how monoculture is like created this incredibly environmentally destructive like yeah you know uh, soil destroying ecosystem destroying like pesticide dependent fossil fuel fertilizer like junk feeding it to the american public and then blaming the american public when they eat this food and then they get really sick or obese or anything like that um and it really comes down to all, all of this uh the way that we've essentially industrialized every aspect of our society nowadays you know and we had 90 minutes to do it <laughs> well, I mean, that's the that's the other thing is being succinct with this information. I mean, this is yeah. this didn't happen overnight. Yeah, you know, and 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 the the there's an irony here. Do you know who Brian Adams is? Uh, the singer, Canadian singer. Yeah, he yeah. he 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 had this whole message about you need to shut down wet markets and all this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah and it's like that. here we are. Yeah, you know the coronavirus, and they blamed it on wet markets and stuff like that. But we need to only look at how we produce, mass produce, and slaughter animals, and kind of go, "Holy shit!" Like that is horrific. And and keep in mind that pigs and cattle are sentient creatures. You know that's why I I, I hunt, uh, and you know for anybody who eats meat, you should probably try hunting. And realize, okay, I never want to waste another animal because when when I do you hunt, I, I think it. Uh, I do. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, just target practice with a bow. I'm kind of working yeah. up to it. Uh, but my first job was at a butcher shop, and I studied with a master butcher when I was in my uh, like late 30s in England. So I've never had a you know, like I don't look at chicken breast and say, oh, that's not an animal. I know exactly where exactly. everything is coming from. Uh, and I've eviscerated animals and done all of that stuff. I just haven't hunted yet. Well, for, for my, for, you know, myself is I shot an animal and when I saw it die, I can't even explain, but there's this natural inclination to look up every time. I, I'm not a religious person by anybody who knows me knows I'm not religious, uh, but it's just, there's something about that connection to that animal. And, you know, if, if you, if you're not some kind of a trophy hunter, which I disagree with that hugely, mm -hmm. um, there's this piece of being thankful, you know, and you don't want any of that animal to go to waste, right? You want to use as much as of it as, as you can, but in yeah. our society, there's so much food waste. It's it like, oh man, it's crippling when you stop to think about it. Right. Like even this conversation. Like a, yeah. Yeah. It's also a weird, like, you know, uh, the UK got into a, uh, they had to do this whole research report. So they, uh, their new currency uses beef tallow, um, on their currency. Uh, so it, it makes it more viscous so that you, when you put it through money counters, um, it doesn't stick together. And so they, 
obviously a lot of vegans got very upset with that because they don't want anything to do with animals at all. Um, but they had looked into the only viable plant alternative was palm, uh, palm oil. And there's just massive devastation, massive deforestation in Indonesia, actually on a scale that I think is greater than even the Amazon rainforest. Uh, and so they were like, listen, we have cattle in England. This is part of a sustainable system. We're not going to move to, uh, you know, Indonesia to, to go and, and build this whole thing. Um, and there was an artist who did this um, kind of incredible uh, a book where she showed she showed all of the elements that they use uh, they use for a pig, from the bones, the nails, uh, collagen, you know, any number of different things. Um, I think our LCD screens require cholesterol. Uh, you know, any number of it, we we cannot remove ourselves in any sort no. of way from uh, the way that. So it's like this weird sort of marvel. Like we can take a, a living sentient thing and we can turn it into any number of shit, you know? <laughs> right? Total, like total, like we, we are incredible at like just carving things up, but there's a cost to that, right? Mm -hmm. There's a cost to having been so far removed from life and death um, that we sort of live in a world where we think that we can escape that. Um, and I think that that's, you know, for us was the hard part about creating the film we wanted people to really like dive into the notion that if you eat nowadays something is dying for your food um, if it's organic then it requires bone meal it requires blood uh, from animals feather meal it requires manure from from animals um, you have to put nutrients back into that soil uh, otherwise you're heavily dependent upon you know incredible amounts of fossil fuels and pesticides and and strip mining and all of that stuff, um, mostly of developing countries. Um, and so we just wanted to have a more nuanced argument because, it, you know, every vegan documentary that's coming out nowadays says you're going to live forever. You can become an elite athlete. Um, you know, you can <laughs> exist like, you know, in any number of different things. Um, there's one that's released today that's talking about fishing, um, the overproduction of, of fishing, which is obviously a problem. There's one on pandemics that they're fast tracking because of COVID. Uh, there's one on social justice uh, by a black vegan talking about how meat was sent to the inner city to kill black, you know, families in the inner city. Uh, you know, and so to me, it's it's one of those sort of weird things that kind of happens when you get into I don't want to call it cultish behavior, but you see every answer is equivalent to. The question that's asked, right? You say, "All right, well, what's the problem?" Right? You're afraid of cancer? Go vegan, right? Uh, mm. Your climate change? Go vegan. Um, any number of different things, and I was okay with that. I, I actually really like. I, I was vegan for a while. I, I did it for about a year. Kind of ruined my health. Um, mm. But uh, when the multinational corporations started to get involved, uh, you know, companies that were like heavily invested in child slavery in the Congo, um, it, Nestle, Mars, um, a lot of like real brand names. Um, they're uh, Unilever, which actually started out in the Belgian Congo, is at least partly responsible for millions of deaths. Uh, when every one of these companies said, hey, we're going to start making plant-based foods, I was like, wait a second, 
And we're all going to do it behind closed doors because you guys aren't smart enough or intelligent enough uh, to be part of this conversation. So we're going to have this global diet and we're going to essentially institute this global diet because what we have is um, we have climate change is, you know, this incredible, like overarching aspect of our world. And so when you create crisis, you, uh, you know, uh, multi-million, you know, multi-billion-dollar companies can leverage that crisis uh, to institute whatever they want. You know. Well, I, I I see it as this way. Like when I go to the supermarket and uh, they always ask me, "Do you need plastic bags?" Well, they charge me five cents a plastic bag. My point is, is that corporations and companies they'll never do what's right unless it benefits them. You know, and, and that's just the way it is. They're never, anytime you see somebody, you know, like a big up there, I always ask myself, you know, what is in it for them? And chances are there is something in it for them because they're a business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think that there's just not enough scrutiny. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that there is, uh, because people panic. Um, you, you were, we were talking before about Robert Sapolsky. Um, you know, I think when you, when you put people under real existential stress, um, you know, what you find is that people will look to people who, uh, have the answers. Um, and you should always run away from people who say that they have the answers. (laughs) I trust, I trust students more than I trust gurus. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The people who ask the questions. Yeah. I, I, you know, I find, I, I find Jordan B. Peterson to be highly problematic. Um, you know, I, I find a lot of those guys, um, you know, well, he I, talks look. like, he talks like a Bond villain, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> anybody who sits in their chair and does this, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this guy's uh stick is, yeah. but I don't trust it. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the thing is, well, one thing that COVID has kind of showed me is that the people in power, they don't know what is going on. They're human beings, you know, like my, the government here. And, and I'm not anti-government or anything like that, but they were all kind of like, I have no idea what's going on. And they're doing this whole stay calm, everybody stay calm. But meanwhile, they're, they're running away to Tahiti or whatever. Point being <laughs> is that, you know, we're all human beings and it's almost like we forget that. Like we think we're this strange God creature. And in your book, The Primate Kitchen, or, or not, excuse me, not book, but your, your uh, site, primate kitchen it sort of talks about how we can't forget about who we are and where we've come from and veganism doesn't make any sense because uh, a primitive human they didn't just live off of grass they had to eat protein they, they ate bone marrow you know all these things and you can't just be a carnivore either we are omnivores but we really do have to listen to our bodies and the way that we live going back to robert spolansky's book uh, zebras don't get ulcers. We do not live like the way we live is very artificial. Yeah, yeah, and I, it shows in in the way our bodies have developed. Uh, you know, it shows in you know many modern lifestyle conditions and chronic disease are are direct result of that. Um, you know, we don't get enough vitamin D. We don't get enough uh, you know natural movement. Um, uh, it, and our modern medicine doesn't necessarily know how to deal with it, right? Um, there was a, a British Medical Journal article that came out a few years ago um, 
talking about the like the the level of depression uh, happening in the UK, and you know these doctors are get coming in, are talking to the patients, and everybody's experiencing this real sort of malaise. And so, in the absence of being able to do anything to kind of change the culture and change their station in life, they're like, "Well, what am I going to do? I'll just give them a pill," um, mm. you know. And I think you know that's that is generally our way uh, in and around most things, right? Oh, I have a pain. Well, here's a painkiller. Let's never figure out what the source of the pain is. Maybe you have a rock in your shoe, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, you know. Um, let's let's figure that out. And I think um, I think it's uh, you know I'm 47 years old. I you know I I suffered through depression in my 20s. Um, I had no concept that the food that I was eating uh, was having a huge detrimental effect on on. Uh, my feeling, um, you know, and, and being a sensitive person kind of growing up in the world, you see, you know, you grow up, uh, you're surrounded by the inner city, you're surrounded by poverty, you're surrounded by cycles of poverty, you want to do something to change things um, and, uh, and help in so many different ways. And, you know, so like I, I ran a nonprofit for close to a decade, we worked in inner city schools, uh, mainly in sort of gardening programs, but overhauling school food. Um, because I saw how transformative it was for for me, and I saw how uh, a lot of these companies that are selling this shit uh, were doubling down on the inner city because oh, yeah. they're like, you know, because white middle class families were like slowly moving away from Capri Sun and fruit juices and you know Coca Cola and all this other stuff. So they were really like going after um, the kids that were, that I was teaching, um, and I also saw. Um, you know, just how much pressure a lot of these kids were under. Um, and, you know, I, I always go back to um, Malcolm X's quote. He's like, uh, you know, talking about progress, like whether or not we're making progress. And he goes, you have, you have a dagger in my back. It's seven inches mm -hmm. deep. You pull it out four inches and you call it progress. <laughs> yeah, know? there's still a dagger in my back. <laughs> still a dagger in my back, you know? And so, um, you know, just start trying as much as possible to kind of like change things uh, and really go after these companies. What I found was that it, not only were they being, you know, like highly influential uh, just in terms of like changing all of this, but now they were moving into this whole plant-based movement uh, and really focusing on like um, taking these low nutrient foods, just adding in some B12 and all this other stuff and, and then selling it. Um, back to us and I was like you know I don't know just fuck them you know I mean they're really yeah. like it, it, you know so tired like even the vegan versus like meat eater argument is so like not even where I want to be I want to yeah. focus on these guys um because uh, they, these corporations the people who are are you know Socrates or Plato's allegory of the cave the people who are behind them making the signs that they're seeing on the walls yeah the brainwashers yeah, and you look at you look at their marketing because I follow a lot oh, of the industry yeah. stuff. They will have the same things. Like I don't know if you remember that Pepsi commercial with one of the Kardashian girls, where they're like everybody was protesting, and then she shows up like a fucking Pepsi and tries to give it to the cop. <laughs> like they are using every single social. I did justice. not see that. Yeah. Oh my god, it's fucking horrible. Oh. You know. It's like a bunch of beautiful people like dancing through the streets and then the cops show up and it's like this stalemate and she just gives him a fucking Pepsi. <laughs> I can't, I can't fucking, I can't stand forced 
you know, Diversity Inc. There's this book out right now called Diversity Inc. And I, for the life of me, I can't think of the author. Amazing though. And it's saying that Hollywood, like who, who's still determining what's the greatest picture of the year in the Academy Awards? Oh yeah. Bunch of fucking white people, you know, get out of here with that. Right. Yeah. You know, they, they're just putting spotlights on all these, you know, these diversity, the different colors and stuff like the show Bridgerton, you know, that's such forced, uh, you know, mandatory tolerance or whatever. Like, look, everybody just get along. And it's like, oh my God, that's so obvious, <laughs> right? Like, I, I'm all for the message, but it's like, come on, like, try a little harder, right? Yeah, and I, I have a huge problem with the advertising industry there, uh, Hollywood in general. I yeah. think that there is. Um, I remember, um, so uh, uh, George Lucas, right? So mm -hmm. George Lucas has made billions for Hollywood. Right, his company yep. just like blockbusters, and you know and he's a good back, guy. Yeah, you know, like his sequels to Star Star Wars were fucking horrible. Oops. But <laughs> but you know, his wife is black. His you know his children are mixed. Uh, he did uh, a film uh, about the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, mm. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with with their whole story. I did an interview with a guy, Eric Palmer, and he runs the Detroit. Uh, Red wing, or uh, excuse me, a uh, red. Oh my God, red tails. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And he shared their story, and he was like, "Oh, this is kind of this guy knows a little bit, but not much." But anyways, yeah, the red tails trying to bring awareness. To yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And so there was a. They did a syphilis experiment on the yes. Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, no medication, no prophylactics in anything like that because they wanted to see the long-term effects of syphilis. Um, and if you've ever seen the long-term effects of syphilis, it's like your brain turns into Swiss cheese. It's oh, absolutely shit. horrific. Uh, and these, we, you know, there were tons of medical experiments that were done on, on black and indigenous communities, Puerto Rico, the birth control pill was tested in Puerto Rico, uh, you know, massive amounts of sterilization, all of the vaccines were essentially tested on marginalized people. Um, but so George Lucas wants to do this whole film. I think it was called Red Wings. Um, and he shows up and nobody, none of the distribution agents show up. They're like, whatever, we, we already have a black film this year, you know? And this right. is a guy who has made billions, billions. absolute yeah. billions for that. And if you do look into the history of like Hollywood, it's actually pretty funny because like, they had Nazi censors there. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, they were like really big into, um, you know, uh, the German Nazi censors would be like, oh, there's too many Jewish people in this film, get rid of them, you know? Uh, and they had enormous influence because Germany was a big purchaser of films. Like, you know, uh, Hitler's favorite uh, cartoon character was Mickey Mouse and his favorite film was King Kong. And so they had, you, you, you had all of these synergies that were kind of happening uh, between Hollywood and Nazi Germany that immediately after Pearl Harbor essentially switched. Uh, and they want you to kind of forget how much they were kind of part of the sort of creating of the American ethos, right? The uh, cowboys and Indians, uh, you know, all of, all of our stories that I grew up with, right? I grew up, I was born in 74. Every single one of those stories is like really fucking uncomfortable a lot nowadays, yeah. you know, um, you know, 
and so I think, you know, this sort of reconciliation with our past this is, is part of the reason why I have a big problem like Jordan Peterson, right? Because what he's actually asking for is no reconciliation with that at all. Um, yeah. You know, don't you wants... see how good you got it? That's, yeah. That's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what I'm I, picking. Yeah. I, I read Maps of Meaning. Um, you know, I wanted to read his stuff before he became particularly well known. Um, and, you know, like he's a guy who grew up with like an enormous fear of uh, mutually assured destruction. Um, and what he found, I think what he found was a bunch of really self-assured uh, individuals because um, he, he went to college. He was like, oh, I was hanging out with all the liberals, but they just seemed to whine a lot. <laughs> you know. Uh, and then I found this like uh, working professionals, lawyers and everything like that. And they were assured at what they were doing. And so I gravitated towards their assurance. I'm like, of course you did. You had an existential fear, and somebody showed you that you know you could, you would have that they 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 understood, um, you know that they didn't have to deal with the doubt anymore. Um, and so he gravitated towards that. And if you look at a lot of, um, he, he has these uh, like 1980s um, like uh, uh, closed circuit TV interviews. Where he gets up there, I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're fucking awesome. He's like in this weird cap uh, with a, uh, and he's saying, you know, the 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 problem uh, with society today is that women think that they uh, have the same authority as men, and you know, um, and you know, the traditional dominance of male is what we should be going back to, and really uncomfortable to watch. Right. Uh, you know, and he's, he's evolved. He's evolved his, you know. Well, well, the guy that I was having a conversation with, William mm. William uh, Gadner, I, at what point, like me getting pissed off at somebody for having such, you know, uh, archaic views, it's mm. that's maybe that's what they're after. You know what I mean? So instead of that, I I, I side with let's have a conversation and let's let's agree to disagree. But we're talking mm. about marriage, and he's like, well, yeah, no, two gay people shouldn't get married because that ruins the uh, integrity of marriage and i'm like i just i i don't see that argument but again no. it's like what is getting pissed off at somebody for having such old views going to do you're never going to change someone's mind that way i guess mm -hmm. and and that's a problem that we're kind of facing is that well for example um i've been reading a little bit more about uh, people like frederick Douglass. And how he talked about how in the North there were, you know, liberalism and it's like, oh, everybody's equal. But then, you know, as history has shown, as black people move into communities, what happens is the white people leave. Yeah. So really what is, you know, is equality a real thing or is it, is it just an ideal, I guess? And for me, it's a real thing. I mean, it's uh, the, you know, it's self-evident that, uh, things like inc inclusion and integration things like that everybody benefits but yet so few people they're like afraid of it and why is that i wonder yeah i mean i think you know i think when you look at a lot of uh you know self-help um you know the uh self-improvement um you know work that's coming out now uh 12 rules for life any mm -hmm. number of those those different things um, what I don't find a lot of is actually people moving within those spaces where they feel uncomfortable, right? 
Um, and so, you know, for every Thursday for two years, I went to the Schomburg Center uh, for Black Culture and listened to whatever lecture was on that week. Um, you know, it, it was every first Thursday of every month uh, over a long period of time. And it talks a lot about, uh, you know, um, uh, sports figures uh, in the Black Power movement. It talks, you know, talks about policing. Um, you know, it, it, in America, every single month was somebody. I was typically like the one of the two other white people in the room. Huh. And you know, of course, you should feel uncomfortable. You should be uncomfortable. You should not not for any other reason than like, and you should shut up and listen. And, you know, and find Huge. these stories. They're amazing stories. I, I read a lot of, um, of black history. I don't think mm -hmm. you can understand American history unless you read from people uh, who have gone through it, and who understand cult uh, American culture from the outside. Um, I think, and, and sorry to interject, interject yeah. but I think that that's true about all, like, all Western European powers you know, Brazil benefited hugely from the slave trade. Any contemporary culture, you need to know black history. It shouldn't be just a week or a month. You know, it should be throughout the year, right? So sorry, it's right to interject, but go on. Yeah, no, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think we should all be reading, um, you know, and look, I, I, you know, for me that um, like Latin American history, you know, Hispanic history in America, um, migrant labor movements, uh, any number of these different things, uh, they're all going to give you an incredible perspective on the world. Um, you know, I, since I changed over my diet, uh, I went from somebody who was a C student in school to, you know, reading like two to three books a week now. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't have considered my ability to learn uh, to be heavily dependent on the food that I took in um, but I think it really changed a lot of that. And I ingested an incredible amount of information. Um, and, you know, it's important for me to understand these stories. Um, one, because they're unbelievable. They're so beautiful uh, and they're so uncomfortable. Um, and there's so much poetry and, you know, um, and real understanding of like ecology and the world and all of this other stuff. I just think it's like, um, you know, um, when we were talking about Sapolsky before, it's really interesting that like, you know, anthropologists and, you know, are like, there's very few black anthropologists, right? Uh, there's and, very few African anthropologists right. who aren't white. You know? Yeah. Always through their lens. Every single thing is through their lens. Um, and yet we, we, we want to believe that we understand a culture. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Napoleon Chagnon. Right, a uh, guy who kind of fancied himself as like an Indiana Jones, uh, and he went to go study with the Yanomami people, um, mm. traditionally considered a very warlike culture, um, and he used that as a, as an you know an ability um, because we've always had this sort of argument back and forth as to whether or not we're very much like chimpanzees. Sapolsky studied that, right? Yes. Um, his subsequent book uh, where he talks a lot about like all and all human beings because. Yeah, you know, we're all one species. Yeah, right. So, is there an alpha male? Do they get all the spoils? Do they get all the women? Or is are we more like bonobos? Uh, bonobos mm. are are much, you know, like very egalitarian. Uh, you know, use sex as a way to kind of like 
dismantle any aggression or like you know anything it's it's they're part of the reason why they're not studied is because people find it very uncomfortable how much they're having sex oh yeah yeah. they're just getting (laughs) off all the time and you're like oh Oh, shit they're on to something yeah (laughs) um so napoleon chagnon he goes down and um he goes to study uh, this and it, obviously his his point of view was that we're very warlike in general. Humans are very warlike. Look, look at the twentieth century. Um, and so what what he d- neglects to mention is that he actually brings things in. So he brings in machetes. He brings in tools that hadn't existed with the Yanomami before, oh. and he creates like a scarcity. Now people are fighting over tools that they wouldn't have had known existed before, right? Then he continues to ask them questions. They they don't like to talk about their family history. They don't like to talk about ancestors. Uh, it's part of their culture to not necessarily like um, uh, to constantly bring them up because I think there's a, a period of mourning and you know any number of different reasons. But he's constantly asking about ancestry, and so he's creating chaos. Mm. And then seeing all of this chaos, like uh, essentially, like you know. Um, give his worldview what he originally came in to believe and then he comes out and he's like listen this is the way the humans are he was incredibly influential in the 70s um and then somebody went and did a you know a ton of research into him was like no this guy created this whole dynamic pattern uh you know and we have to look at that stuff um you know i just i find it really interesting um well and i think that's a good point because the, the Richard Kipling's the the white man's burden. You know, you can't oh, help Rudyard. but bring that up. Yeah. Or, or excuse me, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the white man's burden, and it's about this idea that you know, we're so noble and we know it all, and we're so advanced. Uh, of course, then you read a book like uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by um, Diamond. Yeah, Jared. Jared, thank you for. Oh, I'm, I'm glad I got you on, man. You're helping. <laughs> but anyways, my point being is that that we only got to this position of power through whatever, you know, these strange set of circumstances, but we're no better. We're, we're actually more alike than we're different. But then of course you, you go to this culture, this person went uh, with his own set of lenses and was like, I'm going to bring this, you know, again, thinking that this is all good intensive purposes and then saw, Oh my God, they can't handle it. They're falling apart. What's wrong with these people? Yeah. And and Edward Said said it very well, this this idea of othering people. And we as long as we keep doing that, we're going to keep fucking up this earth. And that's the bottom line. As long as we keep seeing cultures as either inferior or superior to our own, we're going to keep destroying this planet. That's that's what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you look at the sort of uh, anthropology is a, a relatively new science, if you uh you know, it was uh, sort of born out of the early 20th century. Um, and it was specifically derived around one idea. It was to prove the uh, superiority <laughs> of the white race. Um, eugenics. And so, yeah, don't get me started on eugenics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so you have, this, um, you have this anthropologist by the name of Madison Grant uh, who writes a book called The Passing of the White Race. Um, mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about misogynation. He talks, like, you know, he he starts the whole sort of patterning of this idea. Um, and he wasn't original originator of it, but he actually was one of the most it, sort of biggest popularizer of it. Um, you know, he says if you mix, you know, a, uh, 
100% white man with 1% Jew, then you've got a Jew. Mm-hmm. That's his whole sort of uh, – and this book was enormously uh, popular. Um, Hitler called it My Bible. Uh, and he utilized a lot of the theories that were in there. Flag. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so he was able, like, heavily, really influential uh, in sort of creating um, what was at that time a sort of novel field of anthropology. And so anthropology was meant to go out into the world and prove the superiority of the white race uh, in every single way, and then create a passage by which uh, you create these countries that would have no inferior people anymore Mm. uh and that's where sterilization kind of comes in and everything like that um frank boaz uh who was a german jew who emigrated to the states was the first anthropologist to kind of push back on that and he spent time with the uh the inuit and he was like he was like what are you talking about like these 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 cultures are incredible they live within ecosystems boundaries um you know they live um you know they're not divorced from everything that's around them and you know he creates like margaret mead uh he teaches her she goes off into the rest of the world she starts talking about sex and women and coming of age and all this other stuff um uh, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, mm. you know, uh, was one of Frank Boas's uh, teachers. Um, and so she was an anthropologist, trained anthropologist, who also became a writer. Um, and so he created this whole other dynamic that pushed back against that. Um, and, you know, but at, at the time, everything was centered around that. Um, anthropology, archaeology was meant to prove the superiority of the white race. Um, and so it was you know, in many ways, the same thing as phrenology and eugenics and all of these things, these pseudosciences that were so heavily influential. I don't know. I, I find it really hard for people to conceptualize how influential that was. Phrenology textbooks sold three times more than the origin of species by the end of the 19th century. I, it was the science of the time. Um, and we can see the ramifications of phrenology in the Rwandan genocide. Uh, so the Belgians had used the Hutus and the Tutsis, played them off of each other, said one was a superior race because of skull measurements and all this other yeah. bullshit, uh, and created identity cards that were centered around this othering of people. And then, of course, what happens when you feel like an existential threat with a superior like tribe or a race is that you create... Uh, conditions for genocide you know and so it's weird like most of my research now is centered around eugenics and sterilization and all that stuff um i've been doing a huge deep dive into that uh over the past couple of years um because it seems to be like i gravitate towards things that people don't want to talk about <laughs> well that's great because i gravitate towards that too uh, yeah i just think it's like you know we should be talking about these things um you well, know. the danger is, is that if we don't talk about them, they're just going to keep happening. Yeah. Right. There, yeah. there, there has to be an awareness piece. And again, I, I, we're, we're living in an age where, I mean, the internet, and I started with this, it's such a fascinating place. Because if I wanted to, I could just watch stupid cat videos all day. Right. Yeah. But if I really wanted to, if I wanted to question what I believe, and this is kind of going into phrenology, why did that book sell? Because there's a confirmation bias. Oh, absolutely. People yeah. agreed with that. Fuck yeah, I'll buy I'll buy Oprah's new book. I know what she's gonna say. I don't want to buy that book because it doesn't, it clashes. There's that dissonance, that cognitive dissonance. 
And again, going back to what I'm saying is discomfort. That's really where life begins. You know, I've started doing the whole ice bath Wim Hof thing because I'm nuts. Mm. And <laughs> dude, there's nothing like it, right? And people are like, why would you do that? That sounds like torture. I'm like, well, it feels like freedom, you know, yeah. because there's something about our human, our being, we're not meant to live like this, not meant to live so comfortably. We're meant to challenge ourselves, especially our beliefs, you know, and we'll never get any better if we just go to the same room and have the same conversations with the same people. We have to challenge ourselves. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, yeah, I, and I'm hoping that my documentaries do that. Um, mm -hmm. We did a film called Transmilitary that talks about, we have around roughly 14,000 um, transgender identified people currently serving in the military. Wow. Um, you know, and the reason why we funded it uh, was because, you know, in, in many ways, the same, if, the same thing in the black community um, and the poor rural community. I joined when I was, I joined the uh, military when I was 18. Uh, and, you know, most of the people in my unit were people of color, uh, kids from rural, the rural South, uh, and then kids who were given the choice of four years in prison or four years in the army. Uh, and then there were like a few other, you know, people who, whatever, I don't, you know, like me who just joined for make my dad proud or whatever the fuck I did. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, I think it's really interesting when you look at, uh, uh, who who is in the military now uh, versus the draft, right? Uh, and then you know if you if you want uh, some degree of meritocracy, if you want some degree of like you know actual healthcare, um, you know, so marginalized groups end up serving in the military, uh, and we have around oh. fourteen thousand transgender identified people who are currently serving who can't live their authentic lifestyles. Um, because they will be kicked out. Um, you know, and it was an interesting film to like, Barack Obama was leaving, Trump was coming in, everything was happening in real time. Um, you know, and it's just, it's such a scapegoat. It's like you find this one thing, and it's one marginalized people, and you're like, that is the reason why society is falling apart. <laughs> you're just like, really? Well, it's, it's, it's yeah. a tra it's somebody who, you know, a, a trans person, are they any less human than a, than a, gender binary person you know what and i mean look, like and you look at you look at margaret mead's writings and she's talking about transgender people in hunter-gatherer societies well, her, you know, her, this her is hermaphrodites not, or whatever the greek gods yeah, or yeah 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 i mean it's just like this binary thinking is just it's such a remnant of you know sort of 1950s like puritan methodology of looking at the world it's a um, church dude yeah, it's just, it's really hard to kind of like, yeah. you know, um, yeah. Here, here's, here's what I, I, I'm, okay, I'm very, you know, for, for anybody who doesn't know this yet, hey, newsflash, I'm anti-religious. So <laughs> why, why were gay, why was it a sin to be gay? Because you can't make children. You can't carry on the, the whatever. I mean, that's, that was the argument, right? So mm -hmm. also why was suicide, like, why was it a sin to commit suicide? Well, because fuck, you're going around telling all these peasants that there's this wonderful place you go to after you die, and they're tilling the field. They're like, fuck it, you know. That's so. Then they're like, holy shit, we got to create like hell. So hell is kind of the, the the way that we see it—the fire and the brimstone. That's a creation, right? 
you know, Christianity today, if Jesus came down and, you know, was like, holy fuck, what do you, he wouldn't say that, of course, because he's Jesus, but he'd be like, what are you guys doing? This is not what I am about. And I know what I'm saying is going to piss a lot of people off. Good. My point is, is that you get a whole hell of a lot further in life if you just learn to work with people. You know, it's not like a transgender person is a serial killer. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not harming anybody else. That's something they're trying to figure themselves out. Yeah. So we need to treat them as such, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's just a, uh, it's always been just so easy for people in power to, to take marginalized groups, uh, play them off of each other. Um, you, you look at that as the, you know, in the creation of the white race, um, you know, who was excluded from that? Italians. Southern you know? Italians. So especially Southern <laughs> Italians. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, Jews were considered African, uh, you know, any number of different things. Like you had to be uh, a Nordic person in order to be considered. The Irish were considered that were not white, um, you know. And so I think it's, um, but when that was created and you were like, all right, well, now you're part of the white race. Well, then obviously you are, no matter how low your station in life, at least you're still better than this other person because we've, right. we have this caste system. Uh, and that caste system says, as long as you're just one rung ahead of somebody, um, you know, then you're never going to like get together uh, and sort of push, push back against that stuff. Um, you know, and I just want to like, I don't know. I just feel like at the end of the day, like, isn't this the fight that you want to have? Like, you know, right. Isn't that like, yeah. don't you want to fight against the dragon you know, yeah. instead of like beating the guy right next to you? Who's in the same fucking ditch that you are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's such a good point too. And, and, and this sort of, again, this, the consequences of superiority are what will destroy, you know, our, our, our developed world. It's destroying it right now. Um, there's, a, there's an author who I'm checking out right now. His book's called The Devil You Know, Charles Blow. Have you heard of him? Yeah, Charles. Uh, yeah, I got into an argument with him once. <laughs> I, okay. Uh, wow. Because I'm listening to this book and I'm like, whoa, this guy's on to something. But anyways, what, yeah. what he's saying is that, you know, everybody, the great, great remigration, go here. Mm. You know, Stacey Abrams said, if you, to, to, to re-empower uh, you got to vote, right? And yeah. that's kind of what he's saying in his book. And the fact that, you know, like, oh man, why, if we could just get along, we could get so much further ahead. But because of these, these disagreements that we're having, again, you're talking about these marginalized groups that the powers yeah. may be make out of us, it's keeping us stuck. And yeah. how much longer I like, are we going to like be stuck? He's, yeah, yeah, he's always been, uh, you know, like really pushing back against a lot of that stuff. But he went vegan. So it was just like, ah, I see, I see. You know, I was like, Charles, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> so what is, what is the, the human diet supposed to be like? The ideal human diet? <sighs> you know, I think if you look at it, um, you know, I'm going to quote one of the biggest uh, vegan proponents out there. He said, if you were going to design, uh, you know, a, a zoo for elephants, would you just try a bunch of things? Would you kind of just throw like things into his cage to see what he eats? Or would you look at what he ate in the wild? Um, and so, uh, 
David Katz is one of the guys. He's just a big, like, he, you know, he, he sells himself to, to whomever. He's a big advocate of like junk food and, and sugar and all this other stuff. But he wrote a diet book and it's uh, sophomoric in, in every single way. But he makes this case. Uh, and he said, if you look at hunter-gatherer societies, the minimum threshold is about 60% animal foods. Um, we see that uh, it's intermittent. Um, you know, uh, it really is. We have had periods of time when we're mostly carnivore. Um, and then periods of time when, you know, part of the reason why our species survived uh, is because we're, we're omnivores. Uh, you know, we eat an incredible varied diet and can subsist off of that for a very long time. So if you look at the totality of it, um, what we never came anywhere near was vegetable oils, um, mm. you know, margarine, sugar in, in the way that we eat it nowadays. Um, you know, you'll get fructose, uh, you get it from honey, um, stuff like that, but it's intermittent and it's a treat more than anything else. Um, you know, fruits, um, if you're in different climates, uh, man, you're not, you're not going to get, you're not going to get like it. I think it's really hard for us to conceptualize what, what yeah. fruit was. Uh, if you look at the original, like, avocado, I don't know if you've seen it, it's 90% pit, right? It wasn't meant for us. Uh, it was meant for, like, you know, uh, just large uh, herbivores that are now extinct, uh, you know? Whoa. Uh, you just blew every millennial's all. mind with that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, carrots. I mean, look at. I, I'll I'll send you a piece. I'll send you a piece about like what what a lot of these things. Why are carrots orange? Is because Belgian Belgium wanted a fucking national like you know, so they made them orange. There, the I, Belgian I, flag, right? <laughs> I heard it was William of Orange was coming to England or something like that. Uh, and it was all part of raising awareness of there was a Dutch king or something like that. Okay. I Right. But similar uh, to what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of the apples came from Kazakhstan in one forest, uh, you know, and Holy it shit. may, so if you look at like Johnny Appleseed, he was selling <laughs> cider. That guy was not selling apples. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting story. He was, um, in order for land to be owned, you had to cultivate it. Um, it was a way to disenfranchise Native Americans from their land. Uh, and so he would, uh, graft uh, trees in order to make apple trees. Uh, and he just went and he was one of the largest landowners. He, like he lived off of like, he, he lived in like hollows of trees and all of that stuff. He was a fucking weird her hermit. Uh, but he owned an enormous amount of land. He speculated and he bought uh, for pennies on the dollar all of this land. He cultivated it for people uh, and then created access for them to go and, and move in the westward expansion. But most of that stuff was to make cider, had uh, hard cider, you know, potable alcoholic drinks, because water wasn't really potable at that. So you, right. you know, if you look at how much our founding fathers are fucking wasted all the time, <laughs> holy crap. Yeah. You read some of these diaries, like these guys yeah. were starting their day with brandy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What time of the day did you write this, Ben Franklin? <laughs> Serious. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look at, and those are seasonal fruits, right? You're not going to get, you're not getting apples until, until the fall. Um, you know, mm. so I think, it, you know, I, uh, 
within within a, mi- a mile square, most hunter gatherers are probably eight hundred to a thousand calories worth of plant food. Um, you know, uh, but they do hunt. They hunt a lot, um, and unfortunately, they hunt a lot. Hunted a lot of things to extinction. Um, yes. You know, uh, and I think that there was, you know, who knows? Who knows? Um, you know whether or not uh, we we sometimes lionize a lot of these groups and say that they were like in many ways able to kind of like coexist within that dynamic um you know but people got to eat you know yeah. well so, i mean think about in australia the, the 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 primitive societies there and how they overhunted all these massive animals so quickly right yeah, within ten thousand years they did uh, the initial ten thousand, and then they coexisted within that environment for fifty thousand years. And the British, the British couldn't stand that idea, and so considered them animals. That was one of that was one of the sort of laws of the uh, sort of British mentality was that if you didn't dominate nature, uh, then right. therefore you were closer to animals, and you could be shot for being on that land, you know, because you were uh, considered to be a lesser being, you know, but 50,000 years, long fucking time. It's well, there's a lot longer than we've been here. Right? And, <laughs> and, and I think our rate of consumption, I mean, really, we don't have to eat as much as we eat. I mean, really, I just kind of try to eat when I'm hungry. So yeah. I, I do periods of intermittent fasting or whatever. Of course, you put a thing of Ben and Jerry's in front of me. It's far, the situation's sure. fucked, but that's because it's sugar and sugar's right. a drug. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> but the idea of we just we overconsume in our society, and we really need to consume less. Like if yeah. we, I think somebody was saying, David Attenborough, you know, if you just ate red meat like three times a month or something like that, you know, it's not that you have to completely go, you know, abstinent from it. But it's just managing our diets better. Because like you said, you, you have this clarity now because you've changed your diet. And is that yeah, because you – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think – I mean we have the least vacation time in the world. Uh, yes. You know, we work more than uh, you know, anybody else. Um, uh, food becomes a source of comfort. Um, you know, it, it's part of the reason why I never thought education was – the way to go with teaching people about food. I just, it's a toxic environment. Um, and you know, if you study enough Sapolsky, you, you recognize that like we are living, we are zebras living with lions around us all the time, right? TV's a lion, uh, the internet's a lion. (laughs) And so we're stressed all the time. And so we're just going to sit there just chewing on the, you know, what, whatever is going to give us comfort because it, that's the level of stress that we're under. And we know it lo- lowers IQ. It lowers like your, uh, your ability to, to make good long-term decisions when you're only living in the moment and all of that stuff. But it also creates a perfect consumer society, you know, um, you, you know, in many different ways. So I don't know if people necessarily want to change that. Because it's given us all of these gifts, right? <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and well, there, there's also the material aspects too of like how much shit do we really need, you know? Yeah. Because uh, uh, you know, fun fact: pre-Neolithic man didn't have you know U-Haul vans, right? Everything they needed, they had. Yeah. We have way too much, 
Yeah. So, um, so how do we get away from that? Uh, I, you know, I think we have to re-engineer the economy um, to stop thinking about growth uh, within the narrow limits of this planet. Uh, and if that's universal basic income and, um, you know, taking, there was a, there was a study that was done, uh, in Canada, um, in the seventies, um, where the government, the enlightened government at the time had decided they were going to take a, uh, farming community. Um, so everything that was, uh, around the single commodity, uh, farming community, uh, and give people universal basic income, uh, and then just see what happens. Uh, and what they found was that people quit jobs that they fucking hated. And so employers had to be better people. Rates of autism went down. Rates of obesity went down. Uh, depression, alcoholism, uh, mental health. Every single one of those uh, markers were improved. Uh, and it was just taking a little bit of pressure off of people. Um, you know, and I think, I mean, I think for us, we have to get rid of the mythology that the other is, you know, I always ask people, it's like, what would you do if you had a universal basic income? Just enough to kind of get by, you wouldn't starve, you could pay your rent and all of that stuff. And like, oh, I'd write a book, I would spend more time outdoors, I would do all this stuff. And you'd be like, what would other people do? Oh, they just fucking drink and get, the, you know, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> and it's just a, it's the notion of the other the other is always going to be lazy and squandering things yeah. and you're going to be the you know build the perfect fucking mousetrap or whatever it's going to be <laughs> we're all john mcclain and die hard nobody's the bad guy <laughs> you know Fuck. well uh, i i realize that we're at an hour and 14 minutes it flew oh, cool. it all it always does james thank you so much yeah, uh that's fun so, so the sacred cow—that's yeah. the most recent film that you've made. Yeah, tell yeah. us, tell us a little bit about that, and where we can find it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's on iTunes now. Um, mm -hmm. You can look under the film section of that. Um, it's, uh, or you can go to the website. It's uh, sacredcow.info, um, and you'll find information to get on there. Uh, you know, for us, we wanted to create a film that was going to push back against a lot of the "you have to go vegan." Um, you know, there, there is a middle ground here in a middle way. Right. Um, we recognize that there is a problem with our industrialized food system and there are people working to improve that. Um, and they want to give animals a, uh, a, a biologically appropriate life. Uh, and they want to create a system where if you put animals back on the land, they do what they do really well, which right. is regenerate soil, create ecosystems that can thrive. Um, and, you know, and, you know, create, um, you know, um, in in many different ways, uh, what we would consider an ideal ecological environment. Um, a balance. That also feeds people, uh, yeah. nourishing food, not just calories. Uh, and so we want to create a film sort of centered around that. There is a book, Sacred Cow, as well, um, that goes much more deeply into all of the kind of nuance. Um, I partnered with Diana Rogers, who uh, you know lives on an organic farm, is a registered dietitian and a first-time filmmaker, uh, because I, she seemed to be the only person approaching this like holistically. She wanted to, so if you're talking about human health, ecological health, like you know climate change, any number of different things, um, you know you can look at this film and you can grab a lot from it. Um, it is the tip of the iceberg. We also wanted to create. You can you can also purchase all of the interviews that we had, uh, ones that didn't make it into the film. Um, because we, what we find is a lot of these vegan documentaries will give you bits and pieces of an argument and it's really cut 
And as a filmmaker, you know that that person, what they said before that and what they said after that may not be that line. We want to give you, these are the interviews. These are the questions that were asked. This is what that person said. Um, you know, we want to be as transparent as possible that, you know, every documentary is from somebody's point of view. It's all biased, you know, and we don't admit in any way that we're the, we're right. We, we just said, this is ridiculous that the only solution now seems to be this like, uh, really sort of idealistic, um, you know, uh, viewpoint of the world. Um, and the last time I saw idealism take over agriculture uh, was in Russia um, under uh, Trofim Lyshenko, who was the agricultural minister under Stalin. And this guy was responsible for more deaths in the 20th century than anybody else. 14 million people in the Ukraine and close to 40 or 50 million people in China because his ideas Great were exported. Great leap forward. Uh, were based on his agricultural principles. Um, and they were bullshit and he falsified data and you know he wanted an idealism in agriculture that fit uh the idea of communism mm -hmm. and it was responsible for a lot of death and i worry about that you know um, well it's happening in india right now with, with the farmers yeah protest. yeah and i think if you look into that uh Nahendra modi um he is part of a very sort of fascist um, RSS, BJP is his political party. Um, you know, these guys are, you know, the equivalent of Donald Trump in many different ways. They're, they're uh, he is, and he's, he's a weird guy. And he claims he never had sex with his wife and, you know, he's never had sex in his entire life and he's an ascetic and, um, you know, it just, it, I don't know. There's just something. So he's a cyborg. Like, He's just a man without feelings, I think. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hard to trust somebody like that. Yeah, and you know, for obvious um, reasons. Yeah, I just think this idea of, um, and uh, you know, uh, and I don't know. He, he has his uh, his persecution of the Muslim minority, mm -hmm. uh, the pogroms that he's setting up, the massacres that have happened under his watch. Uh, and his persecution of mediators uh, in his country are all centered around a lot of these really totalitarian ideas uh, that are based on a sort of fascistic wing of India. Um, and, you know, and, and his war on farmers, which just doesn't make any sense at all. I listened to your podcast with um, your friend, um, you know, the, the privatization of the... Oh, ja with farming. Jasmine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, all of that stuff just doesn't make any sense. You don't fuck with food, you know? You just yeah. don't, you know, unless you really know what you're doing. So um, so that's generally what the film is about. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a lot of great scientists, uh, you know, people who really care about this subject um, and, you know, people who really understand, like, the long-term effects of uh, nutritional insufficiencies on a diet and, you know... Um, and all of that. And just like 70% of our agricultural land cannot be used for crops. You can't take a slope of a mountain, um, you know, and just put whatever you want on it. Uh, yeah. If the weather systems change too dramatically, if uh, you get hailstones uh, before harvest season, uh, if the ground is too rocky, most of our agricultural land is not croppable land. And if we're not putting animals on it, then we're not using it. 
Um, and that means calories that are just not being used. Um, and so there's a lot of lying with statistics that's going on uh, with people trying to get people to move towards plant-based food, that we're going to free up all of these resources and stuff like that. And it's just, uh, it's just really hard to get into the weeds of all of it. Um, right. you know, and I spend all of my time arguing against interest. So yeah. most of and my work exhausting. is like, so watch the film, <laughs> just watch the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Now, okay, last question. So, uh, Nick uh, Offer Offerman, yeah, <laughs> he's the narrator of that. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, "Oh shit! <laughs> wow, this is awesome!" Because I'm a huge fan of that guy. What was it like working with him? Uh, yeah, I mean, Nick is um, he? He's just a like he's a cool dude. Um, yeah. He uh, James Rebanks, who's in the film, who was like um, he's like a I don't know, multiple generation sheep farmer. Uh, he's also really close friends with Nick. Uh, James was in the film because he was like, oh, you think farmers are dumb? I'm going to Oxford University. I'm going to get a decree. I'm going to all, then go back and be a sheep farmer and, you know, and write these incredible books about, you know, farming and rural uh, history and all this other stuff. Um, and so for us, getting Nick was a big win because he understands that. Yeah. Uh, he did a documentary on Wendell Berry, who is really heavily influential on in the organics movement and regenerative agriculture before anybody knew what that was. Uh, so he knew all of this argument. Uh, we didn't have to convince him of anything. We just had to like find a space for him because he was like touring all over. Uh, then COVID happened and everything freed up. So we were able yeah. to kind of get him. I can narrate whatever you need. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, but he was great. I mean, you know, like... Um, yeah, I mean, this is like the third rail of, you know, in every single way. Um, right. So, but that's where I like to dive in anyway. It's like, you know, got to do it. You, you have got to provoke the bear, my friend. You know, <laughs> like, like, hey, Socrates did it. I mean, and in the age that we're living in, now is the time to really bring some awareness. Because we yeah. can, you can really get your message out. Uh, yeah, I just don't want to drink the hemlock. No, <laughs> but you won't have to because in the age of the internet, you know what I mean? Yeah. Very few things get away from us. Uh, James Connolly, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, uh, I appreciate it. It was fun. Uh, yeah, pleasure was mine. So thank you very much. Sure. Once again, that was James Connolly. It was a pleasure and a privilege in speaking with him. He definitely made me think about how in society and in my own life, it seems like we search for these silver bullet answers and solutions to our problems. However, oftentimes it takes a, a myriad of solutions and strategies to solve a problem. The problem that we face in our earth is, is, is sustainability. But it's also sort of the system that we've created of capitalism and consumerism that really in itself is kind of approaching a moment of, of a crossroads. I mean, yes, there are, are lots of people on this planet. But that's not to say that, that there's not enough resources for them to, to survive, to be okay. It's just, it's a matter of what we're willing to do and what we're willing to sacrifice to make everybody have an opportunity 
to have enough. And that means that we have to give up our surplus so that others can have more. Again, sustainability is one of the big themes that kind of underlines, that, that has underlined this conversation. And thinking that the solution to the problem is something as simple as, as veganism, although I wouldn't say it's super simple, but to say that that's it, that that's the silver bullet, again, I question that. There's more to it than this. And we need to look and examine ourselves and ask, what can we be doing? Because there's always something that we can be doing. What can I be doing? And there's much more that I can be doing. So I, I hope if you've seen change in your life that has, that has brought a better world for you, I would love to hear what that change is. So please send us a message. Uh, our email is robsprobablywrong at gmail.com or our Instagram is probablywrongabouteverything. And we want to share, we, we, we want to hear you and we want to share with you. So thank you for your time and have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.